I'm Vic Singh, and you're listening to Book Stories, a podcast about the business and culture of bookselling in the 21st century. Through conversations with bookstores, publishers, authors, and patrons, we'll explore how bookstores went from cautionary tale to a paradigm of small business success in the course of a decade. If you like what we're doing, help us out by subscribing and leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get podcasts. Reviews help us reach more people. Thanks so much for helping us spread the word. This week's conversation is with Mitchell Kaplan. Mitchell owns and operates Books and Books in Miami. I gotta say, I was blown away by his story. Not only has he built a thriving indie bookstore that's been going strong for over 35 years, but he's also a restaurateur, film producer, and overall thoughtful individual. We talked about books, the book business, basketball, Joan Didion, and lots of other cool stuff. We went all over the place, and it was great. We spoke over the phone, so I apologize for any suboptimal audio. Here's our conversation. Can you take me back to the beginning? Paint a picture for listeners. How did you know at 25 that you wanted to pursue this particular vision? So my journey is a kind of um, not a typical journey of somebody of my age. I'm 63, and I grew up in the late 60s, early 70s, at a time when all things literary were very much celebrated. Um, you know, we didn't have as many distractions as we have now, artistically. And I grew up, um, you know, thinking of writers and 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 people who um, were in the literary community as being kind of heroic in a lot of ways. So I was steeped in literary culture from a very young age. Did you grow up in South Florida? I grew up, uh, yeah, more specifically, I grew up right on Miami Beach, of all places. So it was a little Fellini-esque my growing up. <laughs> you know, it was uh, a little like Amber Cord, the movie. I, uh, I grew up at a time of the baby boom period, but Miami Beach was a place for the old. The median age in Miami Beach was 68, and they were closing down elementary schools for lack of kids. This is right during the heart of the baby boom. Uh, generation. So I went through elementary school, junior high school, and high school, and I clearly didn't know what I wanted to do, but, you know, I, I knew I wanted to leave Miami Beach, so I, I went to the University of Colorado in Boulder, and I, I started there in 1972, and for me, that was really, you know, a kind of, um, uh, almost as if I was catapulted even further down this road of, uh, of, of entering into the literary world because right when I started in Boulder at the university there, I had no way of knowing that it was around the same time that the Naropa Institute started in Boulder mm-hmm. and there was the Jack Kerouac School for Disembodied Poetic. And so I was 17, 18, and I had a front row seat at seeing, you know, basically the beats 10 years later. So I was, you know, at readings with Allen Ginsberg and Anne Waldman and, you know, kind of all of these folks that I had just heard about. And um, there were a couple of bookshops in Boulder at the time. 
that I really, you know, just loved hanging out in. And I kind of steeped myself in all of that. And then I graduated, and like every other English major of my age, it was sort of like, all right, what do I do now? Right. <laughs> I had no, I had no idea what to do. So, you know, it's hard for, to me when I explain it to my kids and younger people to get them to understand that there were like five thousand English majors and like three hundred business majors. It was a very different time back then. Yeah, yeah. And there probably weren't as many majors as there are today. There might not have been. But, you know, the liberal arts were much more heralded back then than um, they are now. And so I, you know, you know, my father was a lawyer. I had a girlfriend who was going to law school, thinking of going to law school. So I kind of rolled out of bed and took the LSATs thinking that I would go to law school, you know, not really knowing what else to do. So if I was going to go to law school, it had to be, I didn't want to go to a traditional law school. So I actually went to Antioch Law School, which was a legal services-oriented law school at the time with a clinical education, and it was in Washington, D.C. And um, that cemented uh, the rest of my life. <laughs> it took me two years to extricate myself from law school, but you know, when I did, I said, I have to do what I have to find my way and create some kind of profession that's going to allow me to do what I really want to do. And and so I decided that I would look into the different things I could do in that world. I never worked in a bookstore. I didn't really know what, I didn't know business. Some people would say I still don't know business, but I didn't really understand you know, the intricacies of business. So I um, I drifted down back to Miami, not thinking I was going to stay there, just thinking that it would be a, you know, kind of place to, to drop my bag, so to speak. I knew I needed a profession to earn some money. And so I decided I would teach at the University of Miami, fortunately, at this program, we could get a master's of English and education at the same time. And I did that, and you know, I stayed in Miami. It was just kind of a fluke, because where I did my student teaching in English from the high school, he hired me. And uh, I met my wife around that time, and so while I was teaching, I worked part-time in a bookstore, and just because I knew that's what I wanted to do. So that's what I did. I came back, I was teaching, I opened up the first Books and Books in 1982 while I was teaching. And I opened a small little 500 square foot bookshop. It was really tiny. But in those days, you could do that. You could open little bookshops. There were probably about 10 independent bookstores in Miami at the time. And everybody had their own niche and all of that. And I said to myself that if I could make as much as I was making the bookseller as a teacher, I mean, as a bookseller as I was making as a teacher, I would stop teaching. And fortunately, I was making so little as a teacher that that the bar wasn't terribly high. <laughs> so after about the first six months, I was able to pay myself a few hundred bucks a week. And um, that's how I started. And that, that fall, I gave up teaching. 
And I was, you know, I was youngish. I was in my, I was, I think I was 27 by that time. You said a few moments ago that you don't really know anything about business, but I would argue that you know quite a bit because you have a successful <laughs> thriving bookstore and it's, it's been going strong well, I have to say, about as old as I am. So everything I've learned, I've learned beyond the job. You know, nothing theoretical. I made a lot of mistakes, you know, and I'm still learning and I'm still learning how to you know, I had to find the right help and that sort of thing. But so I did that. And so we opened and, and I was, you know, I was really loving it. I just felt, and, and what happened for me is I always didn't ever think I'd stay in Miami. But when I opened the doors, I met a whole group of people that I never knew existed here. There a lot of like-minded people. And I was in a very unique, it's hard to imagine, but it was, I was in a very unique situation because Miami at the time, was at really its lowest ebb. It was it was really falling apart. We had just come off the Mario Boatlift in nineteen eighty. I don't know if you know about that at all. I don't. It's when um it was a very significant part of, of Latin American history. What what happened was in nineteen eighty, uh Cuba, Fidel, opened the doors and said anyone who wants to leave can leave. And what happened was a flotilla of boats came from as far away as New Orleans and Miami, and everyone went down to Cuba. And it was at this port. I'm familiar with this. I just didn't know what it was called. What did you say it was called again? The Mariel Boatman. I got it. Okay. So what happened was, you know, because it happened at the port of Mariel in uh, Cuba. I see. And hundreds of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people came to Miami from Mariel at the time. And Miami couldn't handle it. And, uh, you know, there was no federal dollars being given to help Miami at the time. Uh, Carter, uh, it started during Carter, but then Carter uh, was defeated by Reagan. And there was just no money being given at the time. And it was a terrible, terrible situation economically for Miami. And at the same time, Miami was undergoing all kinds of, you know, racial strife and all that. And in fact, Time Magazine, around the time I opened, had a um, an article entitled uh, "Miami Paradise Lost" with a big question mark. And um, it was really interesting opening up in you know watching, you know, Miami at its bottom of the bottom, and then being there. During these last 35 years, when Miami has undergone a kind of flourishing to a large extent. And so I had a front seat at all of that. And, um, you know, uh, not very many people have that ability to, you know, uh, contribute a little to the rebuilding of their, their own community. How did your store play into during that time? There's this trend now in 2018, at least for the last five, seven years in bookstores, uh, this notion of them being community spaces. It, it didn't just start. I mean, uh, that's why I opened. I opened as a community space, as did so many other bookstores back then. I mean, you know, what, what cut my, you know, the things that interested me, the reason why I got into the bookselling business were the bookstores that, uh, you know, bookstores that I had read about and admired. Places like Shakespeare and Company, you know, in the Paris of the 20s, and then the Gotham Book Mart in New York, and of course, City Lights Bookstore in San Francisco. All those places were community centers. And 
that's kind of what, you know, that's how I envisioned what I was doing. That's what drew you to it. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm not a business person in general. I mean, it wasn't in order to, uh, you know, to, to open for 10 years and then figure out a way to sell it, you know, at a profit. It was really a lifestyle choice. Of course, and yeah. From the, from, the, from the beginning, from the beginning, the idea was to give back to the community and to be central to the community. So from the beginning, you know, we had open poetry readings in the store. We had authors in. One of our earliest authors was Isaac Singer, Women Above Prize. He happened to live in Miami part of the year. So that notion of being a community center was really important to us. So while we were going through all of that, I mean, we hosted writers like Renato Arena, who was unheard of then. Um, he had come over in Marielle. Uh, we were involved with the libraries and the schools. We bring authors into the schools. You know, even as a little bookshop, we were doing all of that. And now you're doing, I, I read, 60 author appearances and events per month. That's amazing. Yeah, pretty much. How do you orchestrate that? Well, and around, and around that time, we also decided, I decided to get involved in helping to start the Miami Book Fair, which started downtown Miami, which was pretty desolate at the time, with the idea of creating this gigantic umbrella to bring the diversity of Miami under it. And we could do that by, by bringing writers to Miami that, you know, Miami had not really seen nor heard of. Nor did the publishing industry really think of Miami as much of a literary place. A literary community. And the first, no, they, my, Miami was viewed back then as a place where old people lived and uh, were beach reading in the summer. Everyone had a grandmother living on Miami Beach. Uh, you know, it was an extremely uh, not viewed as as a very sophisticated place at all. When I would ask for authors, they would I would always get offered these like non prescription drug book authors who would be coming to 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 Miami. So um, you started the the book fair, correct? Not me alone. Okay, and, and there were, you know there were a few of us, and there was a group community effort, but I was definitely one of the top. How has it I grown? Think. Since it started, you know the bookstore is thirty six years this year. We're having our thirty fifth book fair this year. So it's fantastic. It's uh, you know it was very organic. It didn't you know I didn't have wild expectations. I thought we've all thought of it pretty you know as a major event from the beginning. We knew that it had to be pretty major in order to get the attention of people all over the country, and that's what we did. We wanted to sort of. Uh, you know, uh, say here we are. Miami is you know on the map. You want to bring in Bellingham the Miami, and she'll get an audience as big as anyone in New York. You know, you know if she's there. So you know that's what we want. And the very first book we had James Baldwin, we had Amir Baraka, we had Marge Piercy, we had Alan Ginsberg, we had Mario Vargas Llosa. You know so. We had very major writers from the beginning. That always over the course of the 35 years, the course of 35 years, we've been able to attract and put on some pretty spectacular events as I look back on it. The fact that there's been this 35-year groundswell momentum um, and you've been able to keep it going is just such a testament to like the literary community and, and how people value books. And it's just a great thing to see. Um, can you tell me about the name? Is there an origin story there? 
because naming things is really hard in, in business. And if you have a business venture, if you have an idea, if you have an endeavor, naming things can, a lot of things can die on the vine because you just can't come up with a name. And so you, it seems to me like you just kind of came up with the most simplistic thing, but I, I'm curious. I, I just like to hear if people have like what went in, what went into the blender and deciding what to do with the name for your business. Well, it was really hard to come up with a name. You're absolutely right. And I had thought of all kinds of, you know, cute names or names having to do with, you know, references, literary references, that sort of thing. And, I, and nothing really felt right. One day I was at lunch with a friend, and I was with, and it was a waitress that came over. And the bookstore was just sort of starting, and I was tossing around names. And um, this waitress said, well, what are you going to do? And what are you going to carry in your bookstore? And I said, well, we're just going to carry books and books. And I said, well, that's it. <laughs> that's the name right there, books and books. Well, it's also a nod. I was a big fan, always had been, of uh, a bookstore you probably don't know about. It was in New York. Uh, New York. It was called Books and Company. And they, they, they I kind of, I, uh, I, our typeface that we use, American Typewriter, is very similar to their typeface as well. And they were called books and CO period. And so I was I had a natural proclivity to want to go in that simplistic direction anyway. So it was a way that I could give a nod to them and not copy their name completely. Right. You can give them an homage kind of that's that's great. I yeah, I use we right. use for the podcast we used American typeface as well because uh, it's just a very, it's just a very, it's a very bookstore appropriate typeface. I want to challenge your assertion that you're not a business person, uh, but I actually really think you are. And I just, I'm just curious about your. Th- well, no, 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 I said that. Again. Of course, of course. Um, th- there's some statistics showing that that overall book retail is down double digits, but indie booksellers are are growing. The store count is actually growing in number, and indie store book sales are actually going up. Why do you think that is? What What's happening? Well, you just mentioned that <clears throat> the pie is shrinking if overall book sales are going down. And I think what's happened is that, remember, indie stores came from a place recently of weakness where we had lost so many stores for so many years. You know, when I was when I opened 35 years ago, there were far more independent bookstores than there are now. However, um, people thought that the independent bookstore would become extinct based on the trend at that point. And I think what's happened is that with the collapse of the chains to a large extent, particularly Borders when they went out of business, and now Barnes & Noble is closing stores down, and the collapse of the superstore, you see that Toys R Us just going, yeah. you know, they're closing all their all stores. The notion, of, the notion of the 20 to 30 to 40,000 square foot superstore is an antiquated notion because of the internet. So to a large extent, it's the internet that killed the chains and not so much the indies because the dirty little secret in our, you know, that we all knew and we all know is that with books particularly, um, the notion of the great good place is really important, the idea of the third place. And bookstores have had that, a good bookstore functions in that role uh, much better than a chain does. And that third place is the idea that after work, after home, you have you want to go 
you want to socialize with friends, with other people, you want to find like-minded people, and a good bookstore can be that place. The other thing is that with, with what we're selling, which is books, there is so there are so many books published every year that you actually do need guides to help you find books that should be in your hands and or books that you want to read. And uh, indie bookstores have been able really, really well to um, you know to to give a good level of service and and, and that sort of thing. And, and I also think the other thing that's happening is kind of what happened when I was a young bookseller is that young people are growing up with the idea that they don't want to take the road most traveled. They want to look at the road less traveled. And they want to find alternate careers, careers that dovetail more with who they are. So, you know, we've just gone through the most intense digital period and we're still going through it. So there are a lot of people you know, maybe not a majority, but there are a lot of people who enjoy the analog life and the lifestyle of a bookseller, you know. And so I think all of those things uh, are are lending itself to a resurgence and a rebirth of independent bookstores. Um, so, you know, I, I don't know if that's a direct answer to you, but... I think I think there are a lot of different things that are going into it. Did that answer anything? No, it, it absolutely did. This notion of a third place, it's the whole reason why I wanted to open one in my community, the section of Los Angeles that we live in, because I was looking around uh, places where I can take my four-year-old and there's not a whole lot of in Silver Lake. I think that a place like Los Angeles, I think that a place like Miami, I think that a place uh, like Chicago, a big metropolitan urban area with pockets and neighborhoods, I feel like every neighborhood could have a bookstore and and that bookstore could be supported. Consumers live in these communities, they pay property taxes and they want a place where they can walk around or they want a place where they can go and they're not just relegated to restaurants and um, sort of like corporately polished spots. So that's exactly right. However, the pressure we face is no different than the pressure that any retailer faces. And that is when you're in a large city like we are, rents are really high exactly. in the bookstore, you know. And not only that, but you know, as much as you know, Amazon to me, you know, is in many ways antithetical to my way of thinking, the rest of the world doesn't view it that way. You know, I mean, the majority of people see Amazon as a gift. And so we have to have the conversation with our customer that the way you make sure that indie businesses and not just bookstores survive is by supporting them as much as you possibly can. And, and you know, and so there is this kind of fine line and a tipping point that we have to be careful doesn't happen. Where, you know, just people just, you know, want to come to us for events that we put on, but then they, they do their buying online. And, um, you know, it's killing retail. I mean, online, you know, if you look at the fashion industry, you look at so many industries are being decimated by, by what's happening online. <clears throat> and we've been able pretty much to be an alternative that but it's you know it's, it's difficult it's difficult it's difficult 
busy. When you see that Amazon is now opening physical stores, I think they're at number 14 or 15. What do you make of that? Well, you know, they're going to probably open four or five hundred stores. I mean, they're going to open a lot of stores. But I think, you know, the way that they look at stores is very different than the way I look at my store. I mean, I have to look at my store as my livelihood. You know, it's the way I put my kids through college and all of that. Amazon looks at what they do, not necessarily even for the selling of stuff, but they want to sign people up for Prime. They want to sell Alexa. They want to learn the buying habits of their customers so that they can sell them the cloud or they can sell them movies online, streaming. It becomes a whole integrated reason for why they open stores. So it's like apples and oranges, what we do and what they do. I'm just hoping that when they do open that many stores, that it doesn't damage the independent world the way Barnes and & Noble and Borders did when they expanded their store. And you shouldn't abandon your idea. I mean, you know, there's no bookstore in Santa Monica anymore. They closed down the Barnes & Noble. You know, I tell people now, young booksellers, people who want to open a bookstore, the way you hedge your bet against the bookstore is I tell people, do not open a bookstore unless you own the building. Right. I say, right. Look, at a retail, look at a real estate play. Buy your building, put your bookstore in the building, because even if it's in an out-of-the-way place, because you will attract, you will make your building more valuable just by having the bookstore in it. A hundred percent. And then what you can do, if the bookstore doesn't work, or if it does work, because, you know, the average bookstore breaks even, basically. Yeah. So, you know, basically you get a salary out of it is what you're doing. And so what you do is the growth in the value of the building becomes your way of accumulating value in your business. Do you know what I mean? Absolutely. So that, if I had it to do all over, I mean, I look at myself and I'm on Lincoln Road, which is now like uh, Madison Avenue. I mean, if I had bought the building I was in 30 years ago, I would be able to fund every independent bookstore in America right, right. and keep them going. You know, I mean, this, this building sold for about a million dollars in 1999, and the last valuation on it was $200 million. Amazing. So, uh, Ada's, yeah. I, I mentioned earlier, there's a small a technical bookshop in Seattle called Ada's. Uh, their story is they is a husband and wife team. They actually bought the building as a house and they converted the house into the bookstore. Yeah. And and again, that was their hedge. Um, and it, it's a real estate play. You know, it happened to this bookstore in Brooklyn. They just closed, but they closed because they sold the building for $18 million. Yeah. You know what I mean? And they were in business for a long, long time. And Brooklyn was like Miami Beach, you know. Brooklyn was uh, not a place that... Uh, that lots of people thought would be a growth opportunity. Right, and now look at it. It's all about economics. I mean, it really is. Like, it's it's a business. It is a passion. I mean, like, you have to really want to be in the book business. There's If you're looking at business opportunities, you know, practically speaking, there's a lot of other business opportunities with fatter margins and, yeah. you know, higher cool. growth. So you just, if it's a passion, yeah, it is definitely a passion. Now you have, um, you have affiliate stores. Can I, can I excuse me for yeah, one, yeah. one second? Yeah, yeah, okay. absolutely. Believe it or not, I'm going into my car. Okay. Book Stories is brought to you by classicalchops.org. Longtime supporter of the arts. 
Classical Chops creates innovative educational solutions for kids. They also have a great podcast featuring interviews with music luminaries. You can listen at Classical Chops Studio on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And now, back to the conversation. Can you talk about your affiliate stores? What was the vision in creating those? And another question I have is, are, are you franchising? No, they're not technically franchised. And, you know, at one point, when a lot of stores were having a lot of trouble, I said to myself, you know, what value do I have? And there were people that were approaching me about opening stores in far-flung places. I said, you know, I really don't want to own them, but there may be opportunities for me to, you know, have a licensing deal. Okay. So that's what they basically are. We basically licensed our name and we act as advisors and provide services to these other stores. And basically there's three of them. We have one in the Cayman Islands. That was the first one. And then we have one in Key West with Judy Bloom and her husband, actually. So Judy Bloom, uh, she'd actually be someone really good to talk to. Um, you know, it's called Books and Books of Key West, and Judy and her husband, George, would be really interesting to talk to because you get the perspective of one of the greatest living authors. <laughs> you know, see how she feels about them. And then we have one in the airport, there's a books and books in the Miami airport. Oh, neat. That's a nice, that's a great, that's actually a great branding play for you because you're getting all this, all this eyeball traffic from people that are passing yeah. through the airport. That's very, very smart. I like that. So it's a licensing and advisory play. Yeah. Yeah. That's what we do there. And Is this unique? It's fair. I think I started it from what I know. There are a few other people who are doing it now. Like there's one in, um, there are people that are running other bookstores. I don't know that they're doing it under their name, but they're running other bookstores for people. Um, but not a lot. doesn't happen. I don't know if you know, but we also have three restaurants as well. No, I don't. We have, uh, we have three of them. Uh, one in the Carl Gables location, one on our Miami Beach location, and one in, we have a bookstore in the Pulmy Art Center of Miami. Oh, and we call it the cafe at Books and Books because actually the cafe is bigger than the bookstore. So those are those are those are three restaurants. So we're we're in the restaurant business as well. So it's not just a cafe like a typical like a coffee shop appendage. It's this is like a sit down a sit down restaurant. Yeah, the real restaurant. When did you bring that into the fold? First one we did was eighteen years ago. Okay. But a bookstore cafe was always something I wanted to do. When I was um, in law school uh, I don't know if Kramer books and afterwards and the DC, but Kramer books and afterwards had just opened, and it was one of the first bookstore cafes that I'd ever seen, and I loved it. What did you love so about I, it? Uh, well, you talk about a third place. I mean, this is the third place on steroids. When you can add a, we have beer and wine we sell as well. So, you know, to be able to do all of that under one roof is really a sense of of, uh, you know, brings a sense of community even further uh, to the fore for us. Does it drive book sales? Yeah, absolutely it does. You know, the whole idea is you get people into your store, they're going to buy books. If you keep them there long enough, right? That's the idea. 
know, one way or another, they're going to, or they're going to know where you are because they came to lunch. And then when they go, oh, I need to get a book, they'll come back for a book. Um, I'm going to pull it back from business a little bit. Thanks f- thanks for getting into that stuff. I, I read that you've had a lot of great, you described them as great 10-minute experiences. And, and I, I'd, love to, I'd love for you to share one or two of those, but one that I'm curious about and my wife was actually really curious about as well is if you mentioned a time when Joan Didion walked into your store. Is there a story there? Yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting story. So I'm, I'm at the desk of my small 500-square-foot bookshop and this is probably 86, 87. We had not been open very long. And I get a call. Uh, is Mitch Mitchell Kaplan there? And I said, yes, this is this is Mitchell. And she said, hi, this is Joan Didion. And I was about to say, oh, come on. Who's, who's, who's pulling my leg? And it turned out it was Joan Didion who called me, who got my name from somebody that I know. I, I know who it is. It, it was another writer. And, and Joan uh, got a hold of me because she was writing a book on Miami. In nineteen in the late 80s, three books came out on Miami because what was happening in Miami was after Marielle was so interesting. You know, the mix of Cuban exiles and, you know, Miami was just beginning to emerge uh, in so many ways. And it caught the fancy of Joan. And so she called me and I gave her a bit of a tour of Miami and, um, you know, took her around and showed her some things. And she spent about a month down here doing research and then wrote a book called Miami that still sells quite well. It's um, an interesting book. And, but, it, you know, Joan is exceedingly quiet and somewhat shy. But after I got to know her, she would come down a few times she came in one day with John Gregory Dunn, and the two of them were delightful. You could see how much in love they were with each other. And, and John had written a book at the time, I think it was called Big Picture or something. It was his experience on the set of one of the films that he had done. So it was kind of a movie book, and it was a nonfiction book. And I, I see it in my eyes now. I think it was published by Limelight Edition. But, so John, so... You know, my bookstore was cramped. It was 500 square feet, so there were books on top of books on top of books. And nothing was faced out. And after they left, I went into the film section after saying goodbye to them, and there was John's book, Faced Out. I think Joan had done that. <laughs> faced Out. You know, John's book, just so everybody could see it. But she was delightful. And over the years, I got to present her for a number of books. I mean, I wouldn't... I mean... We know one another. I don't want to overstate that you know, we weren't deep friends, but I felt very close to her in the time that I spent. Thank you for sharing. One of the most fascinating things I read about was the, the fact that you ha- you've had all these 10-minute experiences that I feel like a lot of people would, would love to have, even just a handful of them. Well, you know, I have to say, as an English major, <laughs> as someone who got into this, to sort of who had authors and heroes, I mean, when I, you know, to, to spend time with, I look back at the book fair and I look back at our author, you know, to spend quality time with someone like Isaac Singer or someone like Joseph Heller or someone like, you know, we presented very early on, we presented Anne Rice and, um, and, uh, my memory is going, you know, the author of Prince of Tides and, oh man. 
Tennessee Tigers. I'll look it up for you, so. Yeah, look, look it up for me now because yeah. I'm embarrassed that I'm forgetting his name. He's really, he became, he's an amazing writer and he was a funny guy and really, you know, I became friendly with him. Pat and Conroy. But Pat Conroy. So Pat Conroy and Ann Rice came to one of the very early book fairs and she was presenting Interview with a Vampire and he was presenting Prince of Tides. And I combined them both in the same program because I was afraid that they wouldn't draw on their own. <laughs> That's how early on it was, you know, and they went on to big, huge things. Yeah. And early Tony Morrison came. I got to, you know, Maya Angelou used to come into the bookstore. And, um, you know, just so, so you know, getting to see, you know, see people. Like we had, we had art exhibitions in the stores. We always showed photography early on. And in the mid-'80s, uh, we did a show at Allen Ginsberg where he spent, uh, you know, a time in the bookshop. You know, he, you know, I don't know if you've ever seen his photographs, photography, but I have. he writes on each word yeah. a little description, you know. And I watched him handwrite onto each one of these prints the description. I should have bought each and every one of them. I bought two. I, I should have bought the whole show out. Um, and, you know, these special experiences that I had are just, you know, like, um, you know, that in itself is worth everything that I can possibly imagine. Yeah, no, that's it's you know, so, so, so cool. Last night, last night we had Juno Diaz. I saw on your Instagram, I was looking at your Instagram last night, and I saw that he was there promoting a new children's book. Yeah, it was great. I mean, he was, you know, I've been presenting him since he was a kid, and I was much younger. and So all of that is just, you know, so gratifying. A very young Edwidge.com coming to the store and then being able to present her, you know, when she publishes. And so I feel like I've had one of the richest literary lives that one could have without being a writer. <laughs> you know? That's awesome. I just feel like, yeah, no, I mean, I, I'm just, you know, it's been 35 years. I feel like we've made a difference. I feel so much gratitude to the community for supporting us and I feel gratified in being able to continue this and um, these are the things that that drive me it's so great and I can your energy and your enthusiasm for this is it seems as as fresh as since when you were 25 it's, I can feel it coming through the phone so <laughs> that, that energy honestly is a I was going to ask you about like what drives your business but I think you've already answered it just in talking to you your energy is what dr- has been driving in all these years um let's jump to well, you gotta, yeah what do you want to jump I want to jump to the lightning round I want to ask you a bunch of just fun questions quick questions well, you know, one thing, one- one thing you didn't talk to me about, it's something you probably maybe don't know about. You know, I, I started a film production company. Oh. A book into film. Okay. Did you know that at all? No, I didn't. You're, you're adapting books into films? Yeah, it's called the Mazer Kaplan Company, and we are basically based in L.A. My partner, Paul Mazer, does it full-time, and we have two associates, and we have offices in L.A., and we just... You know, we came out with our first feature, which was called The Man Who Invented Christmas, which was about Charles Dickens and the writing of A Christmas Carol, starring uh, Dan Stevens and Christopher Plummer and Jonathan Price. And if you really like books and writing, you should really watch it. Oh, I totally it will. It came out uh, around Thanksgiving, and it had a really good run. It was distributed by Bleecker Street, 
and now it's about to be, Boy Run Now is about to be streamed. You can buy it on DVD or Blu-ray, but the streaming is... What's it called again, just so listeners can hear you say it one more time? It's called The Man, the man Who Invented Christmas, and it was adapted from a book by Les Standerford. And we have a new one about to come out. It's going to uh, premiere in, uh, in Europe uh, April 20th. It's called the Guernsey Literary and Potato Peel Pie Society, based on a gigantic bestseller that came out 10 years ago. And the star of it is Lily James, and uh, it's got a huge uh, supporting cast. Many of the people were in Downton Abbey, and it's a really lovely, lovely story about a book club that's on the Isle of Guernsey during World War II while it's being... um, uh, occupied by the Nazi, and um, it's quite a remarkable uh, film. And it, uh, Mike Newell, who did Four Weddings and a Funeral, directed it. Oh wow! And that's going to come out. It'll be out in the states in June. Netflix bought the rights to this territory, and. Um, and we have about 12 other, you can go to our website, which is Mazur, M-A-Z-U-R, Kaplan.com. And uh, we have a film that we're about to start shooting soon with uh, Nicole Kidman, based on a book called Silent Wife. So we're constantly optioning books and looking for properties for film and television. Where this falls into bookselling is falls in because as an independent bookseller, and the way I've been able to sustain myself for all these years is um, by finding the value in what I do and finding ways of um, extricating the value from what I do while at the same time doing things that are passion projects. Since I've always loved film, it's a natural for me to bring film to uh, bring books to, to the screen as well. But, you know, I think I have to say, what I do probably, when I say I'm not a businessman, what I really mean by that is I don't do things necessarily just out of, you know, for those purposes. I need it to be profitable, but the prism that I that I look through is, uh, the lens that I look through is the lens of, is it interesting? Can I be passionate about it? Does it do some good? You know, those are the kinds of things that I think about. So what's about what what is this about a lightning round? I so just a couple of questions, uh, um, and and again they can be short answers and they can be long. And you know if you're next time you're in LA, if you have free time, I'd love to sit down with you and, and have coffee and maybe continue the lightning round because you're oh, yeah. you're a totally fascinating individual, and I'm and I'm so glad we got to speak. Um, so, so the, the first question I've asked everybody, I've gotten a 50, 50 response, meaning that they want to come back to me on it. What great innovation or thing is nobody doing in your business right now? That's a really good question. Um, well, the question is this, because of the, this is where it becomes complicated for me because to a large extent, our business is an activist. And so when you talk about an innovation, the innovation isn't necessarily technological. So, you know, there are lots of technological innovations that nobody has really, A, had the resources to do, nor would they necessarily be, you know, pluses 
for the kinds of stores we are. Remember I talked about the analog life? Yeah. <laughs> you know, that sort of thing. So for me, you know, the innovation would have to be something that furthers the mission that we have. I mean, I could tell you about a million different technological innovations that we're not doing yet. I mean, we're, as an industry, we're very antiquated when it comes to um, lots of things, when it comes to what we do in terms of, uh, you know, uh, distribution chains, in terms of, you know, how we receive things into the store, integration between point of sale and accounting, all of those things aren't really happening in the way that they should because nobody really has the money to to invest in that. So that you know, all of the, right. So when you look at all of the, you know, I read I read a huge amount on retail, and you look at all of that stuff that is happening, you know, the integration between online and uh, in store, and you know, all of that, you know. Uh, those are all things that I'm aware of and that might make business easier, but it doesn't, it's not necessarily part of our core mission. So the innovation that I would have to come up with would be something that I would be doing. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Of course. I mean, I, I would, I would, it would not, I would be knocking my head against the wall if it was something I could think of that I'm not doing quite yet. Um, I think, you know, you know what I see in other in other countries where they have independent bookstores that are doing certain things. I mean, there are people who have twenty four hour bookstores. There are people who, you know, have B and B's as part of their bookstore. You know, there are all those sorts of things that are happening. But I can't think of I can't think of an innovation that you know that we would like to do that we can't do. Uh, maybe I'm just Have people come up with innovations for you? Um, that- they've mostly been like marketing innovations, ways to drive traffic into the stores. So everybody's mind is in a different headspace when you ask the question. So it really just... Actually, one thing I could say, which, which we haven't done well enough just yet, and, and that's not just an innovation on the store level, but it's store-to-store innovation that indies are so giving and we band together on so many things that there are a lot of back-of-the-house savings that we can have if we innovated together. For instance, there's no reason why every independent bookstore has to have a separate accounting department, right? It has to have someone paying the bills right. separately. There's no reason why you can't set up regional accounting offices that would service 10 or 15 different bookstores. And then what you would, you know, it's sort of like the way people off, they, they do offshore, they, you know, they take their call center and they move it offshore. There's no reason why we can't share some of that together where we're not each paying, you know, an independent business manager or a bookkeeper or that sort sure, of thing. Sure, sure. So those, there are those there are those kinds of things that I think we can band together explore down the world. Yeah. I mean, further banding together. We have banded together quite a bit with Indie Bound and, you know, you know, the, 
through the American Booksellers Association, all that. But there are there are certain things that we can do to innovate in a way that would work to our benefit. Lower your cost um, basis and just kind of. I would lower costs. Exactly. Um, what are the characteristics of a great bookseller? A great bookseller doesn't need to have all the answers, but they need to know how to find the answer for a customer. And they need to know how to do it in a really, really engaging way. Do you think print will always exist? Print will always exist until people tell stories in a different way. Um, I think as long as people, as long as narratives have beginning, middles, and an end, I think the book itself is a perfect vehicle for that. But if we start telling narratives in a different way, uh, you might find um, you might find print uh, not needing to exist. I love that answer. What are you reading right now? I'm reading War Light by Michael Andaje, which is coming out in May. And I am also reading a book about the movie business. Uh, and for the life of me, you're not going to get me to remember the name. I'll, I'll email you back the name. Okay. It's got a title like called Film This or something like that. I'll find the name of it. It's just coming out. It's really good. What this guy did is he did a study of the changing nature of studios by doing a deep dive into the Sony hack. Remember when Sony yeah, was hacked yeah, by the sure. Koreans? And so he, he, literally, he literally read every email. And not, and he's, not giving us, he's not giving us salacious emails. What he's doing is he's giving a kind of business history through the hack of Sony. And by doing that, he's telling you about how, and what, I can see it firsthand myself, just in my little company, about how distribution is changing, how the studio system is changing, how what we see at the movie theater is changing, and all of that. Really good. And then there's another book by a guy named Steve Almond, A-L-M-O-N-D. He's got a marvelous book that's reminiscent of a It's basically on the last election and why, you know, and, and, and the failings of media and, and what allowed it to happen. And... um it reminded me so much of a book called Amusing Ourselves to Death by Neil Postman, which I loved reading back in the 80s. The subtitle of that book was um, uh, Serious Discourse in the Age of Show Business. And that and, and Steve has done a remarkable job. If you look up Steve Allman, you'll see the title of that book. And I'm just forgetting it as well. But those are three things that are, those are three things on my night. Any authors out there that you think are underrated that need to be getting more attention? Yeah. I mean, there are lots of really great writers that there's a guy, there's a wonderful, wonderful writer named Tim Gattrall, uh, who's older now, uh, G A T R E A U X. And, uh, his books are remarkable. His stories are remarkable. And I wish more people knew about him. If you weren't a bookseller, what would you be doing? I think you kind of, you, you kind of, you're involved in so many things, but uh, this is just sort of like a, you know, if I could do it all over again type question. Well, I wouldn't do anything over, but if I wasn't a bookseller, I might, I love music and I might have been someone involved in music. I could have seen myself in the day having a music club 
for pre- presenting, being a presenter of musicians, sort of like a, a concert promoter, that sort of thing. I would have probably been involved in music in some way if it hadn't been books. Uh, what's one piece of great advice you were told once that you can share today? I'm trying to, I'm trying to filter my way through all the advice. Um, someone once, when I was asking someone once about a potential project, they basically turned to me and they said, why not? <laughs> and, and, and I live my life by that, by that, you know, I look at something and go, why not? Um, and the other thing, the other great, the other great bit of business advice, and it took me a long time since I was a solo practitioner at the bookstore is it has to do with delegating. You know, you, if you don't delegate, you can't really get anywhere in life. But the best, you know, now that I think about it, the best piece of advice, you know, that I ever got, which, which keeps me sane, comes from Edward Albee in the zoo story, where two characters are sitting on a bench in the park, and one says to the other, you know, they're having this dialogue, and one says to the other, you know, sometimes you have to go a long way out of your way to come back a short distance proper. And uh, that has always kept me very sane. When I feel like I'm kind of, uh, when I'm sort of going far afield. That's from something called uh, Zoo Story, you said? I believe it's from the Zoo Story, yeah, by Edward Albee. Excellent. So much information. I love it. Uh, to, a couple more. Um, you're, a, you're a huge basketball fan, I read. Um, favorite team, I'm guessing, is the Miami, am, Ma- Miami Heat? The Miami Heat for the pros and the Miami Hurricanes for college. Those are my two favorite teams. Do you have a favorite player? I do, I do. I, my favorite Miami Heat player is Dwayne Wade. So it's Wade County for you, not Dade County. <laughs> right, right. I'm a huge Dwayne Wade fan. Happy to see him back yeah. in Miami. And we presented him, actually. You know, the NBA had a thing once where they they were they were... Uh, trying to encourage reading, and Dwayne was, I think, in his second or third year, and they had writers, I mean, uh, players talking about books that really meant something to them. And believe it or not, Dwayne's book was a Jane Austen book. Um, And I think he must have read it in college. And um, there's a poster that I actually still have that he signed that, that has three of the players on there with with Dwayne's um, uh, quote about Jane Austen. And we then presented him in a conversation format with a teacher uh, here in Miami where they were talking about the importance of reading and all of that. That was kind of cool. Very cool. And uh, so so he's my favorite professional. Are you a Spolstra fan? Are you you pro Spolstra? I like him a lot. He's a really interesting guy. And I've had the opportunity to meet him He's really down to earth, um, a very literate, very smart guy. You know, some of the this is going to sound a little strange, but some, I don't know why it sounds strange, but to be talking in these terms about athletes, but some of the smartest, or I should say, some of the people who are the biggest readers are basketball folks. You know, um, I have had in my store when opposing teams from the Heat come to town. I've had opposing coaches come into the store to browse the store, you know, on their, on their, you know, just time off their head, I guess. 
Yeah, and and I've you know uh, Isaiah Thomas, when he was down here, he used to come in all the time. Um, Chris Bosch is a gigantic reader. Um, yeah, he is. There's a huge contingent of players that are like, that are thinking about post career. JJ Redick is one example. He's you know, he's going to he's planning on going to business school after he's done, and they are. You, what you said is actually very true. There's this assumption that they're just athletes, but a lot of them participate in, in the podcast world as well, and they're just very articulate, very thoughtful, very well read. Yeah. Well, well, I would say, and it's interesting. I mean, more so, I find than baseball players and football players. I really find basketball players to be much more well-rounded, you know, than many of the other athletes that I've encountered. And you can see it in terms of the political position that they take. So many of them are outspoken about politics. I think there's a sense of freedom that they feel in terms of pursuing other stuff. And um, it's such a long season that they have to find distraction. <laughs> it's true. And, um, it's true. So it's not like it's not like you're a huge sports fan, which is great. I'm a basketball guy through and through. If I wasn't doing what I do, I would have found a way to be affiliated with the NBA in some capacity. I was never good enough to play, but I live and breathe basketball. So last question. And again, thank you so much for this is actually the most important question of all the questions I asked you because I'm about to go get one after this. What's in your ideal sandwich? That's a great question. Um, my ideal sandwich would have, I have to preface it by saying, I'm a vegetarian, except I eat fish. So my ideal sandwich would be a shrimp poor boy, which I love. I'm really, you know, I'm sort of artisanal, homemade, thick bread. That would be my ideal sandwich. Well stated. Uh, Mitchell, thank you so much for participating in this. Like, I, I, I was fascinated by you before we talked and um, I'm just giddy now. I'm, I, you, you gave me so much information and you're, you're so thought, thoughtful in your answers and you've taken your passion um, for book selling and you've extended it into all these things and you've just kept, you've just stayed true to yourself since you were a 20 something. And I admire that and I respect that. And um, I wish you well. Well, I wish you really well too. And Anytime you're in LA, just feel free to reach out. I will. Thanks for approaching me. Wonderful interview. Thank you so much. All right. Have a great weekend. Be well. You too. I'm Vic Singh, and you've been listening to Book Stories. Book Stories is produced by Alternate Thursdays in Los Angeles. 